turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22, please. This is God's Word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word to us, and we pray that you would open our eyes now and cause us to see wonderful things from it. Only you can do this, Lord. We don't have ears to hear. I don't have a mouth to speak. If it was all in our power, we would be uh, unable to receive this good gift. So by your spirit, would you take your word and plant it deeply within us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. For those who haven't been with us, we've been looking at the book of Psalms this Easter season as we celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It may seem strange to look back at a 
a book of songs and poems written a, a long time ago. Uh, why would we do that? However, I hope that you have seen, if not from last Sunday in Psalm 118 or Psalm 34 on Monday, Thursday, but especially today in Psalm 22, that you can see the reason why we would look at the Psalms because they speak so clearly of the Messiah who was to come and particularly what would happen to the Messiah when he did come. Now, without diving too deeply into an academic exercise, I do want to just mention the idea of typology, that David is considered a type of Christ. Now, the word type is used in a very narrow sense. It's, a, it's a academic. It's a, a particular use of the word. Not, don't think kind or, or anything like this. Typology is where we see something that's represented in the Old Testament that foreshadows something in the New Testament. It's usually messianic in nature. Uh, it is often dealing with salvation. It can be a person. It can be a thing. It could even be a place. And while there is disagreement on what things are types in Scripture, there, you know, scholars disagree on certain things, there are some that nearly everyone is in agreement with, and that is those which Jesus himself said are such. For example, when he spoke to Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus said to him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. If you remember the story of the serpent in the wilderness, right, it becomes a type, a foreshadowing of the work that Christ would do, that he would be lifted up similarly, and people would look in faith for salvation. Another example is when Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 10 that the rock from which Israel drank in the wilderness was a type of Christ. So when we look at the, the life of David, then we can see how he foreshadows, his life foreshadows the life of Christ. Uh, we see this especially in the fact that he was the king of Israel. Uh, but we also see it in other ways, that he was a warrior, that he was a shepherd, how it points to the role that Christ would come and fulfill. Psalm 22, however, is even more unique than other uh, passages in, in the Old Testament and including in the Psalms and that it not only has this imagery of the crucifixion, but it, it is clearly, according to the gospel accounts, the words that Jesus had on his lips as he was dying. No psalm is quoted more in the gospels than Psalm 22. The gospels quote the book of Psalms the most, and out of all the chapters in Psalms, this, this chapter is the one that they quote the most in the gospel accounts. The author of Hebrews also takes verse 22 from the psalm and quotes it, ascribing it to the risen Lord. We'll look at that later. Bruce Waltke, a scholar, writes this, For the writers of the Gospels, Christ's quotations from Psalm 22 are not just David's autobiographical outpourings now being applied in a different literary age. They are inspired pointers actually being fulfilled in the Incarnation. It is the God-breathed witness to Emmanuel God with us. So don't think that coming to the Psalms, and in particular Psalm 22, is a novel idea on Easter. The church has been doing this for millennia. We can go back in church history and see how our brothers and sisters in the faith have been doing this a long time. We even go back, Augustine wrote of the church, the churches in North Africa. Uh, he was the, you know, the bishop, he was the overseer over an entire region. And so in the 4th century, the church was doing this. So it's been going on for a long time that the church has considered this a psalm to, to, to look at 
on Easter Sunday. The psalm itself can be organized in a couple of ways. The, the first half, uh, we'll, we'll just look at the two halves. Uh, the first half, verses 1 to 21, it's a little bit more than half, but we'll call it half. The first half uh, represents David's cry, right? I mean, it begins right away. You know what David's feeling. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no guessing what David's situation is, that he is experiencing incredible distress. And then the second half is the praise of the deliverance that he experienced where he realizes that all along God had been at work. All through his distress, even though he felt abandoned and he felt hopeless and he felt alone, that God was indeed present and at work. And isn't this kind of a template for our lives? How many times have we experienced varying distresses from the insignificant little things in life that seem to weigh us down in the moment and then the next day seem insignificant to the monumental kind of distresses, the stuff that's life-altering, the stuff that stops us in our tracks and may last for days or months or years that really uh, change the course of our lives, that after we get through these, we're able to look back and see the Lord was there. The Lord delivered us out of, out of all of these distresses. In this way, the suffering of Jesus and his life, and in particular, his death, becomes a model for how we experience his deliverance from our miseries. And the triumph is the resurrection. This is the crowning apex of all of our hope that we look to. Paul writes, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, the resurrection is our hope. It is our only hope. It is our ultimate hope. It is the hope of all things. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, we now have the hope of eternal life. We now have a hope that will carry us beyond this world. We have the tendency to focus on all of our problems right here and now. But how quickly this life passes away. We're but a vapor, a mist. It comes and goes. What matters... And what will last is what is beyond this life. And that's why the resurrection matters. So let's look beginning in verse 1 in which we read the cry of David in deep distress. Again, the words are familiar to us mainly not because of Psalm 22. I think we're more familiar with them because these were the words on the lips of Jesus as he died on the cross. It's quite likely that Jesus was meditating on this psalm, if not reciting it while he was on the cross In David's cry, we see that this has been going on for some time. He says, day by day, or or by day and by night, you do not answer, I find no rest. So this isn't an isolated event. This isn't something that quickly passes, but something that has been weighing on him for a while. And again, is this not something we can relate to? How many times have we gone through experiences in life and thought, why does God take so long? Why doesn't he answer? Why doesn't he show up? Why doesn't he relieve us from our hurt? Why doesn't he remove what is causing the strife in our lives? I would imagine the same thoughts were in David's mind as he wrestled through whatever experience this was that he wrote about. So where does he go? What does he do? Look in verse 3. He goes to who God is. He goes to the character of who God is, that he is holy. He reminds himself in verse 4 of past deliverances, showing that God is faithful. Our fathers trusted and you delivered him. David shows us how we are to reorient our thoughts, that we are to take our thoughts captive, that we are to reposition our thoughts based on the truth 
just as David did. When we are in the midst of despondency, when we are swirling downward, it is times that, these times that we take our thoughts captive and remind ourselves of the hope that we have in Christ. Well, the battle for David is not simply internal. This wasn't something that he was just experiencing in his soul, although it certainly was there. There were real external threats that he was facing. The people around him mock him and despise him. They even mock his faith in God. And again, the passage rings with familiarity because we think of the experience of Jesus on the cross. Look in verses 6 to 8 and read along or, or scan them as I read from Matthew 27. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and now we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Did they even realize that they were fulfilling prophecy as they scoffed the Messiah hanging on the cross? The religious leaders of his day fulfill the verses that we read written hundreds of years before by King David. David continues to return to truth in his psalm, reminding himself of God's faithfulness. Verse 10, From my mother's womb you have been my God. We see the enemies portrayed as wild animals, fierce and opposing, strong bulls, ravening lions. And then his physical experience is described in vivid detail. One author sums it up as the terror that reduces him to jelly. Call it a panic attack or whatever. It's some kind of physiological experience that David describes here from whatever the threat is that he is facing. And yet the description is beyond anything we know from David's life. A number of scholars confront this. James Boyce writes, Psalm 22 is not a description of an illness. It's a description of an execution, particularly a crucifixion. Crucifixion was not practiced in the time of David or for many long centuries afterward. So this is a prophetic picture of the suffering to be endured by Jesus when he died to pay the penalty for our sins. In other words, it is prophetic and entirely messianic. Derek Kidner adds, No incident recorded of David can begin to account for this. The language of the psalm defies a naturalistic explanation. The best account is in the terms used by Peter in the sermon he gave in Acts 2 concerning another psalm of David, being therefore a prophet, he foresaw and spoke of the Christ. So just to be clear, David did have an experience, and it was clearly an awful experience. Did he understand what he was pointing to? We don't know. Likely not. But it was under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that he penned these words that would then so clearly point to the experience that Jesus faced in his crucifixion. I think this is especially true when we come to verse 16 where we read, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Now you may have a study Bible or you may have heard from, from someone else and, and may note that the, the word for pierced is not in the original Hebrew or maybe you've never heard that before, but it's not. The word that is used here in the original language is the word lion. And as you can tell, if you read it in English and insert the word lion, it doesn't make sense. And that's what scholars have faced for years. It's been a very difficult passage to translate. But what scholars have done, not just for 100 years or 200 years or 1,000 years, but literally thousands of years, is translated the word pierced, describing what a lion would do in the act of mauling. 
even in the Septuagint, which was produced 200 years before the time of Christ. The Greek word that was used, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, produced 200 years before the time of Christ. They used a word that can be described as pierced or punctured, a digging uh, wound type of thing. Justin Martyr, who was born in 100 AD, used Psalm 22, in particular verse 16, in his apologetics work to defend the young Christian faith with a rabbi, to whom he wrote, This very psalm you maintain does not refer to Christ, for you are in all respects blind, and you do not understand that no one in your nation who has been called king or Christ has ever had his hands or feet pierced while alive, or has died in this mysterious fashion, save this Jesus alone. So all the way back, this is how our forefathers in the faith and even those outside of the faith who would do translation work and and scholarly work have understood that pierced is the right word to have here. This is what the author intended and what is being conveyed. And when we put this together with the rest of the picture that is being described here, we see how it makes sense. Not only do we see the physical description of the death of Christ prophesied through David's experience, but we also see other events. Verse 17, they stare and gloat over me, David wrote, which we see fulfilled in Matthew 27. And they stripped him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him. David writes in verse 18 that the people divided the garments, casting lots for them in Mark's gospel, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. But just as Jesus' death was not the end of the story, the resurrection was coming, neither is David's distress the end of his story. And so in verse 22, we see this transition. This transition from uh, affliction and a crying out, it's, it's actually kind of abrupt where David now goes into singing praises for the victory that God has given him. Among the congregation, he exclaims, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. This is the verse that the writer of Hebrews would later use and quote, ascribing it to the risen Savior. He writes of Jesus here, speaking of him as the founder of our faith, He writes, for it was was fitting, this is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, for it was fitting that he... for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. David then goes on to call all of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, to fear and praise the Lord. And then from there, he expands the call even more broadly to the ends of the earth, showing the global reach of the gospel. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations, verses 27 and 28. Many of you know Mark Futado, who has preached here countless times. Uh, He is a Hebrew scholar, and the Psalms, I think, are kind of his specialty. He's written a commentary, and so I've enjoyed reading his commentary as I've worked through Easter this year. And in his commentary on Psalm 22, and in particular these verses that we're looking at now, he writes, Worldwide praise is the theme of the final strophe. The celebration bursts the borders of space and time. The borders of Israel dissolve as worshipers from the whole earth and all the nations join the celebration. 
The borders of time dissolve as worshipers from future generations come onto the scene, referring to verses 30 and 31, those yet unborn. The theme of the celebration is the central theme of the Psalter. Royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. This is the point. So the crisis that David experiences has been overcome by the end of the psalm, and he praises God for this. He's delivered. Yet many years later, the crisis of David that is forgotten, David's David's lying in, in the dirt, and his crisis, except for what is recounted in Scripture, is insignificant. There comes a deliverance that would overshadow and supersede any deliverance that David would have experienced. That is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And this is how we have to see it. In his resurrection, that will bring about this global adoration of people from every tribe and tongue to worship the one true God. In this, he proves that he has done it. Those are the closing words of the psalm. In the Hebrew, there's no object. And so many scholars note that this could, this could uh, be translated, it is finished. The very words that Jesus uttered on the cross, he has done it. It is finished. It is accomplished. Those were the words that Jesus said, and the resurrection is the climactic proof that he was successful in bringing about the redemption of God's people. It is the absolute confirmation that his death was sufficient to satisfy the Holy Father's requirement. The resurrection is our ultimate deliverance. When Paul wrote his first letter to the church at Corinth, he included a section on the importance of the resurrection, the importance of Christ being brought back from the dead so that the people would understand. He says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all of your problems were erased right now in this life, what difference would it make? You eke out 70, 80, for some a few more years of what? An attempt to grab more pleasure, more contentment, more satisfaction. The point is is that if all of our problems would solve, we would still face what? Death. Everyone has problems. No one's problems are erased. We like to think there are people that have no problems. We call them celebrities or people with Instagram accounts that only put the good stuff on there. But you talk to anybody, and everybody has problems. Read biographies of famous people that you think have no problems, and you'll find that they often have more problems than you do. But the end end is that we all die. We will all perish Because death is the final enemy. Yet when the Father raised Christ from the dead, it put on very clear display that death has lost its power. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is this ultimate victory. This is not being relieved from temporary distresses 
or making our, 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 our problems in this life go away. This is victory over death, that final enemy. The victory that is won by Christ becomes ours because of his resurrection. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Every human being that has ever lived knows that there's something more to life than this. There's something in all of us. There's stuff, I think, even outside of us that beckons us to realize there is more to this life than simply living like animals, filling our mouths, going to sleep, waking up, doing it all over again, and dying one day. Even in our own culture, with its decline, we still recognize the, the value of selflessness and love, things that can never be accounted for by Darwinian theories. We were made for more than simply avoiding distress, more than simply trying to get what little pleasure we can out of this life. I hope that you can see that it is the resurrection from the dead, it is eternal life that presents an expectation that is beyond anything that we can ask or imagine. Life, life as it was intended to be, life made complete, life made whole, life that is perfect, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more death or even a threat of death. Fulfillment, true contentment, or as David said in another psalm, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This hope is ours as a free gift of grace, accomplished and paid for by Christ in his death and resurrection. He is the first to rise from the dead to show us what awaits us. And now by faith in him we can have the same hope, a hope that carries us beyond the temporal a hope that outlasts the vapor that is our lives, a hope that is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls now, a hope where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. We have only to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead for our sins. That is to trust in Jesus alone that we might gain this hope for ourselves. Salvation is a free gift of grace received by faith alone in Jesus. It is yours if you simply call out to him. David called out to the Lord. He called out in honest confession, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And by the end of the psalm, he exclaims, He has done it. And that is the proclamation of Easter Sunday. He has done it. It's finished. Our God is at work and will bring to completion all that he has promised to us in the gospel. The resurrection is the proof that he has done it. It proclaims this to us in our afflictions and our deepest heartaches. The resurrection is the answer to our most complicated questions. The resurrection shouts with the psalmist, may your hearts live forever. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, because he has done it, Our hearts will live forever, and we will eat and be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, again, we we come to you, and we are thankful for the resurrection, that there is a hope beyond the the temporal, uh, beyond what is our lives, what is fading fast, what is uh, decaying, 
and of this earth. Lord, we thank you that the resurrection is hope beyond our afflictions and our heartaches, our pain and our suffering, our sickness, and even over the greatest and last enemy, death itself. That we, as we look to the resurrection of Jesus, we see the way in which we are going. That he is the forerunner, the first, and that we too will be raised from the dead. Lord, this is hard to believe at times. Other times we're so distracted by the things of this life. Would you give us clarity of sight today to see with with eyes of faith our hope in Christ alone? Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you, that you would call them to yourself, that they would see that there is indeed more than this life. There's more than just trying to eke out pleasure. There's more than trying to seek what you can gain in a few decades. Lord, would you draw them to yourself, that they might see the free gift of grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus can be theirs by faith alone in him. I pray they would call out to you today. Lord, would you strengthen our hearts and cause us to walk in newness of life as those who have been brought back from death spiritually into life and one day will be given permanent eternal life with no fear of death, no fear of sickness or sadness, no fear of hopelessness or abandonment. But we will be with you at your right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. We long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.